0: So, today we're going to be in Psalm 16. Um, so, if you all want to open to that, this is my favorite Psalm. So, when I got told that I could pick whatever passage I wanted to, I knew right where I wanted to go. So, uh, Psalm 16 is where we're going to be at. Um, before we dive in, I just want to ask us a quick question. So, have you ever wanted to be completely satisfied? I'm serious about this. Have you ever wanted all of your deepest desires fulfilled and have complete contentment in everything? Now, if you're human today, <laughs> I think you have that same desire as I do. We, we all want to be fulfilled. Okay? And one of the ways that we do this, and we try and seek this fulfillment, is that we try and get into something. So, some people choose other things, and some people choose different things. So, some people will choose bars, and they'll go into bars to try and find fulfillment. They go into these areas in order to find satisfaction. Or we might go into a community, like maybe our family or something like that, and we try and find satisfaction in these things. And so these things in the world, there are many things, like we said before, bars or communities, and they all say, come in, be satisfied with us. Um, And they just continue to say, come be satisfied, come be satisfied. And we keep on going to these things, but we can see around us, we all leave unsatisfied. We're all searching, but never finding. And so whether it's your personal experience or even a close family member, I'm sure we can all relate with this too, is that we're all searching, but not finding. So how can we be truly satisfied? If this is a desire that's in us, how can we actually find this fulfillment? Is it even possible? Can we have contentment in this life and in the life to come? Is there any hope in this world? Or are we always doomed to be searching but never finding? And this is exactly the question that the psalm today will be answering for us. So let's dive in. Right. So in Psalm 16, I'm going to give you a little background for us. So it starts off um, with the title, A Mictom of David. This is a weird title actually only given in seven passages in the Bible, so it's fairly rare when you consider all the words that are in the Bible, and it literally means something engraved, and engraved in gold, so it's a special writing, a writing written in gold from David, so it has something special for us. All of scripture is inspired by God, but these psalms in particular have something special to offer. so, all of these psalms were written by King David, as we see, um, but this one is unique. All of the other ones, which are found in Psalm 56 to 60, um, all have something to do with David's personal life. So they're all about a struggle that he was having, um, something that was going on with him. Um, from with the Philistines, to his family turning against him, all of these other psalms have something to do with David's personal life, but Psalm 16 is unique. Because it says it's of David, but we find in it not much trace of who he is or any personal struggles uh, that happened in his life. So if this psalm isn't about David's life, but he's writing it, then who is it talking about? And so verse 10 will let us know later, and it gives us his title, the person that David is talking about. So it gives us his title, but then we have to read the rest of the psalm. So in verse 10, we see that the title is the Holy One of God, which will be the title of the message, and we'll be diving into what this means, okay? The Holy One. What does it mean, what does this Holy One mean? What does it mean to be holy? Okay, that's a word that we throw around a lot, it's kind of a churchy word. So we're going to dive into that. And how can we then be holy in order to receive this fullness of joy that's promised to the so we'll start by answering the first question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? Um, by diving into the first four verses of our psalms, let's go ahead and read that together. Starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply and their drink offerings of blood i will not pour out so as we go through today we're going to go verse by verse and word by word and hopefully dive into what this means okay so we see here there are three calls this is our first point is the calls of the holy one we're going to see what it means to
1: And we're going to see
0: three calls that he makes. This is what the first point of what it means to be holy. So, first off, he calls to God. And he calls in that first line there, Preserve me, O God. Now, that word preserve there, uh, we should put an exclamation point by it. So, if you want to put that in your Bible, then you can. Is because it's in the imperative. It's a request that's given with urgency. It's like a command, so it's used elsewhere. And so it's He's not just saying, preserve me, O God, in a casual sense. But he's saying, save me, O God. Preserve me. I need this. I need this. I don't have anything else. I need you. Preserve me. And this word there for for preserve, uh, I like Hebrew. uh, And so we're going to dive into a little bit of that. It's it's nothing too complicated. uh, But that word for preserve not only means physical preservation, but it engulfs all Preserve me in my spiritual life and preserve me in my emotional life. He's saying preserve all of me. And we can see that as well. Um, That's confirmed not only in the Hebrew word there for preserve me, but also in verse 2, where it says, I have no good apart from you. Nothing good in my life is given to me except from you. Uh, You are all that I need. This is the first call of the Holy One, is a call to God. You are everything to me. You are all that I need. I have no good apart from you. And this is partly what it means to be holy as well, is that it means to be set apart. So he sets himself apart for God alone. And it's also important to note the names that David uses here in this call, for God. So the first name, he says, preserve me, O God. Now that word there emphasizes the strength of the might. L in the Hebrew. So David is not calling, he's, he's not calling somebody who has no power to provide for him, but he's calling on the mighty God who has strength to provide for him. Now, he's not only uses the name God, the mighty God there, but he also uses the Lord, which in the Hebrew is Yahweh, which you maybe have heard as well, which Yahweh emphasizes the covenant or the promise-keeping of God. So we have one who's powerful to provide, but you can have somebody who can provide for you, but won't provide for you. But that's why he emphasizes Yahweh too, which is the covenant or promise-keeping of God, is that he's powerful, so he will, or he can provide for you, but then he also will provide for you, and will provide for him. So he's calling to somebody who is able and willing to provide for him. Now that's the first call, the call to God, and the calls of the Holy ones. Now the second call is the call to the saints. The word saints there actually is related to the Holy One, and it means the Holy Ones. (laughs) So it's the saints, the people who are chosen by God, and the people of God. Now as we saw before, a holy person is one who calls out to the Lord and trusts Him as His only good. But we see a key um, location here of where the saints are um, that will help us understand uh, more about them says they are the saints in the land. So they are the holy ones who call it to the Lord, but they're in the land, or the earth. Now that is kind of a dichotomy, and I'm going to explain why. The saints are the ones who call alone to God for their only good, but the land, the earth, is the place where they are going after all goods except God. So these people who want to search after are in a place where everything around them is saying, don't do that. There's other goods. There's something that will satisfy you other than God. And that's why uh, the next phrase in this, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Now that word can also be translated glorious ones. That's why this makes sense in light of that, is that they are very different from the place where they are. As we read in Philippians 2, 14 through 15, I think this explains Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So these saints are shining in a dark place as lights, because they are chosen by God and call alone to God, and look to him as their only good, because they're set apart to him. But how can they then live in this world that's full of pleasures calling out to them? Come and be satisfied. These people who want to be satisfied in God alone, but how can they live in this place where they're surrounded by things saying, Come and be satisfied in something else? And that's where the next line is so important in this psalm. In verse 3, it says, As for the saints of the land, they're the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now, we talked a little bit about being in something before, and this, I think, is the key. This is like probably the most important word in this song, and we'll see that more later, but I'm going to explain in a little bit why now. So, in can have two meanings here, I believe, and it has two applications, and I think it means both at the same time, but we're gonna see what that means, what in means. So, the word in has two uses. The first one can be that the Holy One who is speaking here has personal joy in who the saints are. So he has a personal feeling of joy and satisfaction in the saints. They're the saints in the land. They're staying faithful. They are serving God in a place that's far from God. And so he has personal pleasure in them. He's satisfied with them. And the second thing is that that personal joy that the saint has, he actually places in these saints. So that personal joy that he has in who they are, and that they're chosen, he actually places in these saints. So the joy that he has, that delight that he has, is in them. So he can say, it's on them, and it's in them. And I think that it's both here. So that joy that he has personally, he also transfers into them. Now we'll see more about this in the next point. Um, Also, But this Holy One is chosen by God, and therefore chooses because these saints are chosen by God to be his glorious ones, this holy one joins in that same relationship and takes pleasure in that relationship with the saints. So because God has chosen them, he also takes pleasure in them. So the call to the holy, to those holy ones of God, the saints in the land, is to live in the reality of being chosen and loved by God and to shine his lights in a dark world. That's what They are the excellent ones, they are shining as lights the world. and in them is all of his pleasure, which is going to be important later. Now, the third call is the call to um, sinners, or idolaters, and that's found in verse 4. And it's to those who run after another god. Now, I believe this is actually a call of mercy here, and let's read it. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply, their drink offerings of blood. I So it might seem harsh at first, but I think this is actually a call of mercy from the Holy One to those who are not saints. Now, why is it merciful? Well, it's because the Holy One is warning these people of the results of running after false gods. He's saying what's going to happen to them later. And the key there uh, is a word, multiply, as well. Now, multiplication is fairly early math. And it's interesting. It's very interesting because you can have 2 times 2 equals 4, and then 2 times 4 equals 8, and then 2 times 3 equals 16. It gets exponentially bigger. So it starts small, but then it gets bigger. And so that's the key to that, is he's warning these people that though your sin and though your sorrows through your sin may seem small right now, my sin's not a big deal right now, it's not anything too bad. It's like white lies or something like that, that they will multiply. It starts as a four, but it will become 10,000 in a time that you won't see, you won't expect. So that those sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. It starts small, so he's warning them ahead of time to say that they're going to be great their sorrows. Now, the other key word here is run. Now, in verse 1, we saw, what does the Holy One ask? God, he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge or rest. And I think there's a contrast here. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. There's the one who rests and the one who runs. <clears throat> those saints rest in who God is. But the sorrows of those who run after who run after another God shall multiply. They're headed somewhere and they're searching. Those who are in God and have found pleasure in him or are his saints have found him and rest in him. Those who are running after other gods, which are no gods at all, their sorrows will be multiplied because they'll be searching and searching and searching, but never finding. And that's why it's a call of mercy, is because the Holy One is saying, I don't want you to be searching. It says, come and find rest in God. So you can hopefully... And now the third warning, um, so he warns them about running, he warns them about the sorrows that multiply, is David takes a little bit of a turn here um, at the end of verse 4. Um, and he says, the sorrows of those who run after God shall multiply. And he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. Now, drink offerings, if you can remember back, if you've read like the Old Testament, it's priestly language. Somebody who's offering a sacrifice for somebody else. So David is saying, their drink offerings I will not pour out. He's saying, I'm a priest, but I will not intercede for these people. He does not take part in their practices. Now it's interesting as well that their drink offerings of blood. Now, blood. Worship their true God. And so, what he's saying here um, is that he will not participate in any practices that are foreign to God. He will not participate in a worship that is for other gods, but uh, giving it to the true God. And so, he is using Prusi language here, and he won't participate. And he says or take their names on my lips now this word is used of priests when they come into the presence of their god and says it's like when we pray for somebody and we want to use their name so what's his name you say i'm gonna pray for jeff maybe (laughs) and he says god i pray for jeff and you're interceding for jeff before god and so he says i will not take their names on my lips so he's not interceding for these people whose sorrows he intercedes for his saints, this Holy One. So he does not take part in any wickedness, but he intercedes for his saints. Okay. And Now we're going to move on to our second main point. So we talked about the three calls of the Holy One, which is his call to God, his call to the saints, and his call to sinners. Now we're going to move on to our second point. I think I'm moving fast, so I'm going to slow down. <laughs> Number two is the Holy One's Choice. So we talked about the Holy One's calls, now we're going to talk about the Holy One's choice. I kept it with C's so that it's easy. Um, and so number two, um, we're going to read in verses five through eight. At this point number two. So it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is the Holy One's choice. It says here, we find that word in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, um, first glance... It looks like this Holy One is saying, I choose you, Lord. You're my chosen portion. I choose you. But it's important to realize this chosen portion in the context, in the history as well, is that this word is actually used when referring to land that's given to somebody. So the Lord is my chosen portion means that the Lord, so it's used in a family inheritance context. Now when you receive an inheritance from somebody, do you get to pick what you want? <laughs> generally not. <laughs> sometimes you get stuff where you're like, oh why, why did he even have this? <laughs> and it's generally when somebody passes away as well. So you don't get a choice in your inheritance and it's the same way here is that the Lord is my chosen portion. He's the person who's been set apart for you as the inheritance. It's also important to notice what is the inheritance. It says it's the Lord. Our inheritance from God is not a bunch of things, but actually a person. It's the Lord himself who is the inheritance. Because we have no good apart from him, who he is, then and because he gives good gifts, therefore he's not going to give us anything except for the most excellent thing, which is himself. And he is the chosen portion. So he's the one who chooses, saying, I'm going to give you this inheritance and this inheritance. And that is the choice of the Holy One. It's not really a choice on his part, but it's God choosing him to bless. Now, what does it mean that he's that inheritance then? What is in this inheritance that is him? So it says two things here. It says that the Lord is his cup and that he's his lot. Now, a cup. We interact with these every day. And what is the purpose of a cup? water in it so that we can drink it. So it keeps it from spilling all over the table because if you just pour it on the table, it's going to go everywhere and then we're like licking the table and it's, gonna, it's a mess. And so basically, God is the walls that holds in our life. He is sovereign over it. He holds that inheritance that he's given to us, which is himself and he holds our lives together. That is what it means for him to be the cup. We are the water inside. us steady. He keeps us from spilling all over the table. Now, what is a lot? Now that we've covered what a cup is. So he's our cup, but he's also our lot. Now, this word, um, you may have heard the phrase, it's his lot in life. Something like that. Basically, another way that we can phrase that is it's what's destined for him. It's his destiny. Now, this word here literally means you hold my rock. Why does it mean that in here? Why does he translate it here as lot and as destiny then? Well, it's because rocks were actually used to determine the inheritance for the certain kids. So if you have five kids, um, I like all these kids kind of equally. That's that thing that parents say. I can't pick any favorites. Um, We all know there are probably favorites, but yes. um, But that he wants to spread it equally, and he wants to leave it up to the Lord to determine who gets what. And so the lot is a chosen rock that he then chooses for people to receive inheritance. So because of that, imagine you're the fourth kid maybe in a five-child household, is that you want to know who's determining your destiny. I want to know that he's faithful and I want to know that he's going to want good for me and that I won't get just nothing for my inheritance. And so the Lord says Again, this is Yahweh, the covenant promise-keeping God. He says, He holds our lot. He holds our destiny. He holds the inheritance because He is the inheritance. And He holds our destiny for our lives. He has determined our days. And He holds that lot for our destiny in His hand. And we can trust Him, again, because He's not only mighty, He's able, but that He's also willing because He's the Lord. And because of this, the psalmist continues into verse 6. And he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That word lines is also properties. He's talking about property. And he's, remember back who's our inheritance? It's the Lord. It's his person, who he is. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Fallen for me when the rain falls on us. It falls on us, and so the and it's directed by the Lord. Our portion was chosen by the Lord unto us for our inheritance. The holy ones. So the lines, the property, the inheritance has fallen for me in where pleasant places, and indeed I have a beautiful inheritance. So that Lord who is holding our lot, who is holding our destiny, who is holding our inheritance, puts it and gives us a place of. Because he's faithful he satisfies his saints and he satisfies his holy one here so his holy one is satisfied in who the lord is because the lord has chosen him to receive the inheritance which is himself now what's the result of this then should he go and retire in the countryside and say you know what god's given me contentment i'm good i'm gonna chill out here and have my little farm, or live my life and stuff? Well, no. Verse 7 tells us what should happen. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. So blessing leads to blessing. The blessing of the Lord leads to us blessing the Lord, praising him and praising the Lord because he is the one who's given himself for us. So it should not lead to just stagnation. The oh, thank you. Um, us just retiring in the countryside, but it should lead us praising the Lord. Praising him. Who gives us counsel. So he not only gives us the inheritance, but he gives us wisdom in how we should work with that inheritance. Which is, we bless the Lord. We praise him. And in the night also, my heart instructs me. If you remember maybe when you were a kid and you woke up in the middle of the night and you realized there's a monster under my bed and he's going to attack me and so you hide yourself under your covers. The dark is scary. The night is scary a lot of times. But it's in this darkness, in the night, also my heart instructs me because you bless the Lord and he gives you counsel. He gives you the truth and gives you that inheritance and gives satisfaction so that in the night he is there with you because you remember that he is your inheritance he is there with you in the night also so he's emphasizing he's not only there during the day during the times but he's also there during the bad times and he will instruct your heart flip the page here So he promises us blessing even through the most difficult times. There we go. Now to finish this section off of the choice of the Holy One, we're going to go into verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We choose God, and the Holy One chooses God because he is chosen by God. God initiates he gives himself for that Holy One. And because of that, he becomes the Holy One. And therefore, that Holy One chooses the Lord. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. So now it's in him. He is choosing the Lord because the Lord has chosen him. And he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. There are two places where he sets the Lord. The first one is before him. If you ever come up to what seems like a commotion and you see a crowd around something and you're like, I really want to see what's going on. There's a bunch of people here, but you can't get past the crowd and you can't see what's going on. And you hear it's probably something really cool or really amazing, but you can't see past the people because they're blocking your view. And it's especially hard when the people are taller than you as well. These people are before you and they're blocking your view. They're right in front of you and they're obstructing what Can be seen on the other side this is what it means to set the lord always before you because he's in front of you he is the one that you're looking at he's not just the backs of a bunch of people that you want to see what's on the other side but he is the one that you want to see and with a crowd of tall people you can eventually get around them but who is taller and who is bigger the crowd of people or the Lord? so when the lord is before you it's very hard to see all of the pleasures of this world around you so when you set the lord before you and you see him for who he is and what he's done for you then it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to see around him to see to the pleasures of this world so that's why he has set the lord always before him is because the lord chose him and the lord gives him these pleasant places so like he wants to look at the lord and say you are pleasant you In you I have joy. You are the only good that I have. And so I'm going to set you before me. So what are we setting before ourselves then? What do we watch? What do we listen to? That's the question that I think David wants us to bring up. Is what are we setting before ourselves? And we'll address that later. Now the second location where the Lord is. That he has set the Lord is because he is at my right hand. Now the right hand... place of favor, and we see this in Genesis 48, where when Israel is getting old, he's starting to bless his sons and to say, you're going to carry the mission that God has assigned for me in getting the land. And he chooses two of his grandsons to become his sons. Now when he sets his two grandsons, their names are Ephraim and Manasseh, before him, he puts his right hand on the younger, who is Ephraim. Now normally it's the older one who firstborn who would get the inheritance and who would get the better blessing. But he sets his right hand on Ephraim, meaning that he gets the greater blessing. The one who's at the right hand gets the favor and gets the focus. And so what does that mean then to put the Lord at your right hand? It means that he is your priority. It means that he's the one who's favored in your life. So you set him before you so that he's all that you see. And then you also have him Right hand, and you favor him. So when it comes up that you have another priority or something like that, that might conflict with the Lord, and you say, the Lord is at my right hand. He is who I favor. And what's the result of this? Having him before you and at your right hand. It says, I shall not be shaken. God blocking the view from every other pleasure in the world, and him being the favored one. The world wants you to think you're going to live a miserable life. You're missing out on so much here. But God says, you shall not be shaken, or you shall not fall, is another way we can understand that. So, the Lord is faithful, and when you set him before you and favor him, because he has already given himself, you will not be shaken because of who he is. The world promises these things, but they're always searching. But the Lord is your chosen he is at your right hand you will not be shaken because he is there all of these things that the world promises of you're not going to be satisfied are not going to be true because of okay. now we're going to move into our third and final point which is the holy one's comfort so we talked about the holy one's calls the three calls Talked about the Holy One's choice, that he is chosen by God, and therefore he chooses God above everything else. Now we're going to move into the Holy One's comfort, which is in verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Now, therefore is one of the most important words in the Bible. It points back to what just was just written and says, because of this, you can do this. So because of what we've seen, that the Lord is our only good and our portion, therefore, now that means that all of this is true. Because of this, this is true. It points us to the reason for what is about to. Now, what are the results, then, of having the Lord always before you? It says, therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. See? He says, first, my heart is glad. My emotions are glad. My heart is satisfied in who God is. And he says, my whole being rejoices. This is everything about you. Your whole being. Everything. So we have your emotions and your Everything. And then he says, also your flesh will dwell secure. So we have the three things that we talked about in the beginning, that our emotions, our spiritual life, and also our physical life will dwell secure with God, because he is always before us and at our right hand. (coughs) He determines our lot, then. Now that doesn't mean that, as we're going to see later, this only one is that we won't have suffering in this life because we will have suffering but it means that the lord holds that suffering in his hand and says i'm going to be with you through this because he is our inheritance and that he will hold us steady through it and that he in the end is working for it working it for our good that's how we can be excellent ones and glorious ones God uses in our lives um, to transform us, and I think this is um, very powerfully said in Second Corinthians uh, chapter four, and starting in verse sixteen. I want to share this really quick. Second so right right. Corinthians four, starting in verse sixteen, Paul says, "So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away." Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we see that weight of glory is being produced in us, that excellent ones, the fact that we can be called excellent ones, is through what God is doing and that weight of God beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. You can't put God in front of you and have him physically shield you from the world. But you look to the things that are not seen and put him there, looking to beyond what the world says and beyond what we can see. The world says, find pleasure in these things from a physical standpoint. But we look beyond that to say, the psalmist looks beyond that to say, The sorrow of those who run after another God shall not apply. Okay, The true results of this are sorrow. The true results of sin are sorrow. But the true results of looking to Christ and looking to the Lord are joy. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because God is unseen. And we're going to look um, how we can do that here in a second. So I'm not just saying so. <laughs> I don't have any practical way of doing so, he says, my whole flesh dwells, my flesh also dwells secure. Now, he gives the reason here. In verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol is the place of the dead. It's where all dead people go in Old Testament theology. Whether believers or unbelievers, saints or sinners, they all go there. And he says, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, corruption there So this refers to the same thing, is that Sheol is the place of the dead and the pit is the grave for the place of the dead as well. So your heart is glad, your whole being rejoices, and your flesh dwells secure because the Lord will not abandon your soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. So your soul is safe and the Holy One is safe. And that's again where we get this term, the Holy One. Because all of this is talking about the that we're going to test to see Whether we are holy After this And so we're going to move on to verse 11 Because not only has he delivered us from the grave and death and Then through He you know, not only has delivered the Holy One from the grave and death But he in verse 11 says You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore So we're not only delivered from death we were delivered to life. So we have life. And where is this life found? This path of life? This way of life? And he says it right here in these two places. And it's actually going to parallel um, what we saw before in verse 8. He says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So now it's God bringing us into his presence. We set him before us because he has set us before him. He has chosen us. And because he has set us at his right hand, therefore we favor him. So we are in his presence where there is fullness of joy. And at his favored place, his right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore. Now you can't get fuller than full. And you can't get longer than forever. And these are the best. It's the best. Because the Lord is the best. So he gives the best to his people. So fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So now we see at the end there, the question, the answer to the question of where we began was how we can be fully satisfied. Well, it's in God's presence and at his right hand, where the Holy One is. So now, we're going to ask ourselves the question, then, who is the one who receives his complete satisfaction? Well, we saw it's the Holy One. Now, who is the Holy One again? The Holy One is the one who looks to the Lord God for all of his good. He is the one who delights fully in God's chosen people. His delight is in them. The Holy One is the one who does not participate in any pagan practice of worship. The Holy One is the one who is chosen by the Lord to receive him as an inheritance. The Holy One is the one who looks to and favors only God. So we can go over this again. Let's, based on this definition for the Holy One, can any of us, do any of us meet the standard of holiness that the Holy One receives? Do any of us meet this, the one who looks only to the Lord for all of his good? Do we meet this As as I look to myself and as you look to yourself? Do you only look to the Lord, or do you find yourself gazing after other things? Do you delight fully in God's chosen people, in the saints? disliking at sometimes. Do you participate in anything that the Lord does not like or does, hates? Sometimes we do find ourselves doing that. Do, are we chosen by the Lord to receive him as an inheritance? Well, that's part of what pulling is. And do we look to and only favor God? Or do we favor and look to other things? So the sad reality with this is that based on this definition of being a holy one, none of us meet this definition. None of us are holy in ourselves. We're the ones who are continually searching, but never finding. Continually walking, but never arriving. As much as we want these verses to, verses to apply to us because of that deep longing, there's only one that does. Now, this is the key to the psalm. This is where the word in, And that verse is verse 3, where it says, As for the saints of the land, through the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. This is the key to the psalm, because we don't meet the standard of holiness. But there's one who does, and that's where we're going to go, actually, to the passage that we read um, before, in Acts chapter 2. And we're going go to go verse 22 through 33, so I'm going to try and breeze through this. Uh, but it's a lot, but I think it's worth it. So, here we go. All right, Acts 2, 22 through thirty-three. We're going to go to the New Testament and what they say about this song. So this is Peter speaking. He says, "Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up to according to delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God, you crucified by kill by." Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make known to me fullness of gladness and with, with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the one who wrote this song, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this is Peter on the day of Pentecost, talking to a group of Jews. And he's quoting... Psalm 16 that we read there, verses 10 through 11. Now I think it's interesting, the interpretation that he takes here. He says it's not David. David's the author, but it's not talking about David. Because David doesn't even meet the record requirements here. A man after God's own heart, one of the great holy men of the chosen people of God, did not qualify to be the holy one of this psalm. He died and saw corruption. And we can even see here, um, through the sin of Bathsheba, he did not always set the one always before him. He ran down the path of other gods, where his sorrows were multiplied. Mm-hmm. So he didn't qualify, but there's one who did, because it's interesting. David was not the person spoken about in the psalm, but he was a prophet prophesying the one who was. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus was chosen by God according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for completing every part of this psalm. He was the one chosen by God to accomplish the work of God. And Jesus is, throughout the whole New Testament here, we're going to look to a couple of passages. Jesus is the one who looks only to the Lord for all of his good. As in John 5, 19, where it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He doesn't do anything apart from the Father's will. He only does what the Father says. He looks to him alone for how he should live. Jesus is also the one who delights fully in God's chosen people, as it says in John fifteen eleven. 11. He says, this, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he's the one who has fullness of joy at the right hand of the Father, and he places his joy in his his people, in the people that he chooses. Jesus is the one who does not participate in any pagan practice of worship, as it says in John 17, 6-10. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, And and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me I am praying for them I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours all mine is yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them because Jesus has accomplished this work of giving the words that the Father gave him Therefore he is glorified in them. He accomplished the work, and he's getting the results of glory. Jesus is also the one who is chosen by the Lord to receive him as an inheritance, because he himself is himself the Lord. And that's seen in Hebrews one, eight through twelve, which you'll get read later if you want. Jesus was chosen by the Lord for the mission to go into his people, and he is the inheritance. Because he is himself the Lord, the Lord himself is the inheritance, and he goes into his people and comes to them, just as Jesus came down and became the inheritance to us, which we're going to read more about here in a second. Jesus is also the one who looks not, who only looks to and favors God, as in Hebrews twelve two verses. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy that But now, how is that verse 3 applied to us in light of Jesus being the Holy One? And that's where we get back to the definition of in. And we're going to go to one last text here in Ephesians 1, 11 through 23, um, where it uses this word in a few times. And it emphasizes in whom we have all these blessings. So Ephesians 1, 11 through For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Father of glory, may you, I listen birth right there. Yeah. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts in that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Parallels are pretty crazy here. So, apart from the word in him, in him, in him, in Christ being repeated over and over and over again, saying, it's not in anything else, it's not in you that you can find fulfillment, but it's in Christ, the Holy One. We see that all over the psalm, and we also see the inheritance that we receive in verse 11. We see there's the predestination of God's chosen people, chooses us, not based on anything we've done, but we choose him because he's chosen us. We love him because he's loved us first. We see that there is the absolute sovereignty of God who works all things after the counsel of his will. He is the cup, he holds our lot, he's working all things after the counsel of his will in our lives. There's the praise that results from the choice in verse 12, to the praise of his glorious grace. And again, the inheritance in verse 14, also guaranteed because of who God is. And again, resulting in praise in verse 14. We also see the love for God's chosen people in verse 15. The intercession of the Holy One for his people in verse 17. And the parallels go on for a while. But the key words which we talked about are in him. In Christ, we receive this inheritance. In Christ, we are chosen by God. In Christ, we are sovereignly. And in Christ, we are transformed to bring praise to his name because of who his Holy One is and what he has done. In Christ, we have every good thing. So if you're here today, i um, we'll talk to two groups of people here for a moment, and you look to yourself and realize... Are the things that I'm putting my hope in. I want to say, just with the psalmist today, that your sorrows are going to be multiplied. Run to the one and say, Preserve me, O God, for in you I find refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. The key is surrender. All you can bring is your sinful self, and he brings everything else. He is the chosen one, the holy one. And surrender yourself to him stop running after idols, and start running start running after and resting in the Holy One, who has accomplished everything, and has fullness of joy, and who is at the Father's right hand where there are pleasures forever. And for those of us today who are in Christ, who find ourselves resting in who he is, and the inheritance that he's given. Let's take this week, and let's take our time today, um, the rest of our time today, to bless him, because that's the result of receiving his inheritance, is praising him. Let's praise him in everything, and recognize who he is. Let's learn more about him, and more about those joys that we have in Christ, because we have all spiritual blessings in him. Let's learn more about who he is, and what he's given to us. And let's all find rest. Christ is, and what he's done. And that's it, so we'll finish this up with some prayer. And then we'll done. Father God, just thank you for who